2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be focused on verses 14 to 17, uh, but I'll begin reading at verse 10 and read through verse uh, 17. So 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 10, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we again give thanks to you for the opportunity to be able to open up your word and to study its truth. We do pray that your spirit be with us, giving us understanding and insight, and that you would truly bless your word to us this evening. And we ask that you would, uh, above all, as we consider the truth here and the sufficiency of your word, that we would be reminded of your glory, which is revealed in your word. And so we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for your blessing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we last uh, considered the same passage a few weeks ago in relation to the inspiration of the Scriptures. That is, the Bible isn't the words of men, but it is the very Word of God breathed out and recorded by holy men through the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Bible is God's Word, and so it has authority in our lives, and as we considered last time, it ought to be the standard by which we live our lives and express our faith. But as Paul writes to Timothy, here he reminding Timothy of the truth that he has known from childhood, he also shows just how profitable the Word of God can be in our lives. Indeed, it not only is profitable for us, but it truly is sufficient for all we need to live faithful, godly lives for the glory of God. When we talk about sufficiency, we mean that all that we need, all that is necessary, has been revealed to us by God in the Scriptures. And this doesn't mean that God has revealed everything there is to know. No, of course, if if we had perfect knowledge, then we would be gods. But as creatures, we don't have the capacity to know all that there is to know. But God has revealed to us, and what He has revealed to us, we can certainly know that. We can know that He's revealed through general revelation, and we can know what He's revealed through special revelation, His Word. And of course, it's the special revelation that really gives us the foolish knowledge knowledge of all that we need to know to live out our purpose and our calling to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
in chapter 1, paragraph 6, we read this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So here we discover that the whole counsel of God for everything that is necessary for our faith and life has been revealed in the scriptures. And this includes all things that are necessary for us to be able to glorify God. We know that Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God's glory. In John 13, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. And so, when we think about the glory of God and seeking the glory of God in all things, we look to Jesus Christ, first and foremost, as the one to show us the way unto God. And where do we find Christ? But we find Him in the Holy Scriptures. But of course, we're also to glorify God in in all that we do as we look to Christ and as we seek to imitate Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that, that of course, is our chief end and purpose, is to glorify God. Again, where do we find that? We find that in the Scriptures. The Scriptures also reveal all things that are necessary for, uh, for man's salvation. Again, this is what Paul was reminding Timothy of, that from childhood, Timothy had known the Scriptures which were able to make him wise unto salvation. And of course, here in this context, the Scriptures Paul was referring to would chiefly be the Old Testament Scriptures. And of course, as we discover in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find God's plan of salvation for mankind revealed. God has revealed, for example, that, uh, that we were created upright, but then that we fell into sin and then became enemies with God. It shows us that we fall short of the perfect standard of God's law. It shows us that there was a way of salvation provided for us through Jesus Christ. And that salvation is only attained by grace through faith in Jesus. And this is our salvation, and God has revealed it in His Word. Secondly, we see that God has revealed all things necessary for faith and life. Faith being what we believe, and life, of course, how we're to live. And so, for example, it's through the Scriptures that we have revealed for us that God is the Creator of heaven and earth, right? In the very first verse, we are met with that truth, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We learn, of course, of God's love, His mercy, His compassion, justice, goodness, truth, holiness, and all His other glorious attributes. Even as we saw uh, this morning from Psalm 139, His omniscience, His omnipresence, and His uh, omnipotence. The Scriptures also reveal to us how we're to live faithful lives. Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What a great blessing that is, that God has revealed Himself and revealed to us in His Word exactly how we are to live to glorify and honor Him. 
And again, this is the, the, real, the very revealed purpose of Scripture itself, is to equip us, to equip us how to live and to do what God has called us to do. And so as uh, Paul lays out for Timothy, he says that uh, the Scriptures are profitable. That they benefit us. They're profitable for doctrine. That is, doctrine, and I know some people today don't like the word doctrine, but all it simply means is, is teaching. And if people want to get rid of doctrine, well, then what are they teaching? Everybody has a doctrine. It's the substance and truth of what we're to believe. And we're to, we're to pass on to others and to our children. The Word of God is profitable for reproof and correction. Right? The Word leads us and guides us in the way that we should walk. And again, we considered that a little bit last time. And it sets the lines, right? As a guide, it, it sets the lines wherein we're to, to walk. And we're not to cross those lines. And when we do cross them, well, it's the Spirit working through the Word of God that brings about conviction and brings us back in line so that we might walk on the path that God has set before us to walk. And also the Word of God is profitable for instruction in righteousness, right? showing us how to live and pursue holiness in our lives so that we can become more and more like Jesus our Lord. And again, that is part of the goal, that we want to be more and more like Jesus in our lives. And the Word of God shows us that. So the Word of God is truly sufficient to teach us all these things so that we might truly be complete and equipped to do what God has called us to do. And again, we may use other resources and, and uh, devotionals and study guides and commentaries and lexicons and all this, these kinds of things, but ultimately, and those things are helpful, but ultimately it's the Word of God to which we're to turn it is sufficient. Those things just further help us to understand the Word of God. And so the Word of God is truly sufficient. Well, this instruction that the Lord has provided for us in His Word are, in the words of the confession, either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from the Scriptures. Well, what does that mean? Well, first we acknowledge that there are expressly stated commands of God that we find in His Word. For example, He says, do this, or don't do this. Right? And we think especially of the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's some, some do's and there's some don'ts that were given in the Ten Commandments. Are, these are very clear and very straightforward, and there's no denying them, even though, of course, many will try to deny them. But the Ten Commandments, remember, are just a summary of the moral law of God. And as a summary then, they're not exhaustive of all that God commands or forbids for right and holy living. That's our starting point. And, of course, many of the other commands that we find in the Scriptures can be tied back to the Ten Commandments. But as far as holy living, uh, and Jesus brings out uh, this point uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when He's expounding the law and the Ten Commandments and look, this is how you understood it but it also means this we're not just to um, you know you can't just murder but even if you hate someone uh, it is uh, it is sin well the confession 
uh, notes that some instructions and commands can be drawn from the scriptures by using good and necessary consequences. That is, if we apply the clear commands, then we can accurately deduce that application can be made in other areas as well. Or we can then connect the dots throughout Scripture uh, from one teaching to another and arrive at a teaching that isn't explicitly stated in any one place, but is surely there in the pages of God's Word. This process of deduction is essential because oftentimes people will want, as they, you know, they talk about a particular doctrine, they say, well, give me the chapter and verse. Where does it say that? Right, for a particular teaching or practice. But sometimes there's no specific chapter and verse that we can point to. But that doesn't make the teaching or practice any less uh, biblical. And so here are some examples. The Trinity, right? The word Trinity uh, is not found at all in the Scriptures. And you can't just go to one verse and say, okay, there it is, Trinity. But the doctrine of the Trinity, of course, is revealed throughout the Scriptures. Even as early as the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image. Who was He talking to? He was talking to the, to the Son and to the Spirit. In Deuteronomy 6.4, in the, the passage of the great Shema, it says, the Lord our God is one, which emphasizes the unity of God. He is one God. And of course, as we looked at a couple weeks ago in Matthew 28, that we're to be baptized into the name, one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons attached to that one name. And then 1 John 5, 7, which is really probably the most clear uh, expression of the Trinity, although there's... Um, some issue, discrepancy sometimes with uh, whether it should actually be in there or not. There's textual uh, issues with it. But it's very clear. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And so when we look at all those passages, we see we get the, the doctrine of the Trinity, not just from one particular verse. Uh, the doctrine of infant baptism is another doctrine that is derived from good and necessary consequences based on how God deals with His people throughout all ages through covenant. Right? That God, when He makes a covenant with, uh, with a, a, a person, He never makes it just with that individual, but He always makes it with, with them and their, descend their children and their descendants after them. The change of the Sabbath day to the Lord's day. From Saturday to Sunday, as the day that God calls His people to gather together for worship and rest from their usual labors. That's another example. We see the apostles gathering together on the first day of the week uh, for their time of worship rather than on the seventh day. And, of course, before we doubt this deduction process, we have to remember that Jesus Himself employed this uh, kind of... Um, process of drawing out the truth of God's word. In Matthew 22, when he's uh, defending against the, uh, the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, Jesus says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God 
of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, of course, if we were to look at this passage in Exodus, which Jesus is quoting from, well, we may not see the doctrine of the resurrection there, but using good and necessary consequences, we discover it even as Jesus uh, here uh, used it and uh, in that particular context. And so we use good and necessary consequences to draw out further teaching of the Scriptures. Well, because the Scriptures are truly <clears throat> sufficient in giving us a guide for doctrine and life, well, then it's perfect as it is. And so sufficiency implies that nothing needs to be added, nothing needs to be taken away, because it already contains everything that it needs according to God's purpose. Paul's charge to Timothy is in the context of uh, Paul warning Timothy about those who would come and who would bring uh, false teaching and who would seek to corrupt the way in which Christians are to live. And Paul warns in verse 13, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. They will seek to add to or detract from the doctrine and teaching that was first delivered. And so Paul goes on to urge Timothy, verse 14, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And so he's saying, look, Timothy, you have to cling to the truth that you know that was first delivered to you, which you learned from not only just from Paul, but what he also learned from the Holy Scriptures, which he has known from childhood. And so nothing is to be added or taken away. And this includes any supposed new revelations of God. There are a lot of people who claim to be prophets uh, and speaking the Word of God and new revelations of God. If you hear somebody talk that way, just get away from them. Because what they're saying is ultimately of the devil. Because there are no new revelations of the Spirit. But also included here would be the traditions of men, which would be added to the Scriptures. And this acknowledgement became a key battle course during the Reformation. As the Roman Catholic Church contended, and still does today, that not only do we have the written Word of God, but that there are unwritten oral traditions and commands that have been passed down. And uh, this, of course, is what Catholicism refers to as the apostolic teaching. Now, note that this is different than what Paul is referring to here with Timothy. What Timothy has learned from Paul was given and written down even in his, this very letter. And so there's no essential doctrine that was left unrecorded. It's been all, all that we need has been given to us. And so the Roman Catholic Church would deny the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures. But what's interesting is that what the Romanists assert is exactly what Jesus condemned the Jews for. In Mark 7, he says, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. So traditions and doctrines of men are not to take the place of Scripture. They're not to be elevated above them or even beside them. They can only be under the Scriptures. 
And this again, why we think about the our confession and the catechisms and the testimony are our subordinate standards, right? They're not on the same level of the scriptures, not, not they're not over the scriptures, they are subordinate to, they're under the scriptures, because the scriptures are the final authority in all things. But there's also a warning here to not add to the scriptures again uh, revelations of the Spirit. Because the Word, the Bible, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through them God has spoken. And so there are no continuing revelations. In fact, the Apostle Paul is adamant about this in Galatians 1. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other than what we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, we so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Of course, that's one of the reasons why we can automatically discount those groups who claim any extra biblical revelations. And if we're not sure about a particular teaching that we might hear, well, then we need to follow the example of the Bereans in Acts 17 who searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. Or as the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, to, to test the spirits whether they are from God. And then we test them by what we know to be true, the very Word of God. And so nothing is to be added to the Word of God. In fact, this is so clear and critical that one of the last charges that were given in the Scriptures is this very truth. In Revelation 22, verse 18, For I testify, and this is Jesus speaking at the end of the book, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Well, there are two, so we're not to add to or take away from what we find in the scriptures. Well, there are two other points related to the sufficiency of the Scripture that we should, uh, should also address. The first is that the Scriptures, and especially the Gospel message, are only going to make sense and have an effect on the one who is illumined by the Holy Spirit and brought to a saving knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. In other words, the only, one who's will, the only ones who will grasp this, the, this idea of the sufficiency of the Scriptures are those whom the Lord has chosen, called, and redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are many Bible scholars who spend uh, much of their lives studying the Bible. And many times they, they actually can glean sig- some significant insight and they, they, they have some uh, good things to say. But, but if the Holy Spirit isn't at work in them, then what they see there and what they discover, even the gospel itself, will ultimately come off as foolishness to them. And they'll seek to add what they deem is lacking, or they'll take away what they deem is unnecessary or offensive. And so, for example, the fact that God created all things in the space of six days, that Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water, was the Son of God who died and was raised from the dead after three days, these facts of faith are not going to make sense to the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, leading them and guiding them to the truth. So in a sense, we should not be surprised then when people attack the Scriptures as being a book of fables. 
But of course we know better. We know that it is the power of God unto salvation. Well, the second point here relates to circumstances in worship and the government of the church that are to be guided by the cultural sensitivities, common sense, Christian prudence, and the general guidelines of the word, which, again, it kind of comes from the confession of faith. And this is important when we consider worship and the regular principle of worship. In fact, it was this doctrine of the sufficiency of the scriptures that ultimately uh, convinced me that the Psalms were to be sung exclusively in the worship of God. Because the Psalter itself is a, all, is a sufficient praise book in order to worship God, because it is God's word. The regular principle of worship states that we're to worship God only as he has commanded in his word, either by express command or deduced from good and necessary consequences. And these are often referred to as the elements of worship. And to this would be prayer, a reading and preaching of God's word, singing of psalms, the sacraments, and the offering. But there are also other circumstances that need to be determined, and often these are left to the judgment of the elders. For example, the time of, of worship, the place of worship, whether you're sitting in, in pews or chairs, even the style of music as to the rhythm and the beat. Although all these things are to be in accordance, though, with the general guidelines of Scripture, which is basically, as Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done decently and in order. And so we ought to start there when we think about uh, what we're doing within the church and within the worship of God. And so as we consider these things, again, we're reminded of, of just how much a gift the Word of God is to us. And all that we need to, to live a life of faithfulness for the glory of God is given to us in the Scriptures. And so let's be diligent then to truly make use of this gracious gift so that we might grow in, in grace and knowledge of the truth and that we might truly live out the calling that the Lord has given us to glorify Him in all things. Let's pray. <clears throat> O oh, gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks, Father, again for the truth of your word and the gift that is to us, that it is sufficient for us. There are many things that we would maybe like to know, many curiosities we have, but you have not revealed them because they were not necessary for us, that you have given to us in your word all that is necessary for life and for faith that we may truly know what to believe and that we might also know how to live for your glory and to serve you above all things. And so we just praise you and thank you, Father, for this gift of your holy word. And we do pray that we would be challenged to take part of that word each and every day, to, to read it and study, meditate upon it, that we may be instructed by its truth and equipped and experience the profitableness as we would be, uh, as Paul charged Timothy. And so we ask, Father, that you would truly bless your word to, our, to us, that we might go forth even from this place to be faithful witnesses, sharing this gospel of truth with those who are in need of it, bringing many salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we just praise you and thank you, O God, for these things. And we ask for your blessing upon the truth of your word in our hearts, through the power of your spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.